welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 13 of Pounding the Table. We have a phenomenal show lined up for you guys this week, and we're going to do things a little bit differently here today. What we want to do on each episode of Pounding the Table is talk a little bit about our most pounded stocks. What we're going to do today is give a little bit deeper dive into each one of these. Not only what we think about these stocks today, as many of them have exploded, and as we all know, what goes up can certainly come down. So going to have a little bit of risk management theme to this podcast. Tony's techniques after such big runs heading into the election. And of course, we're going to have the Pounders thesis and some questions from the audience. For those of you who are new, Pounding the Table is a podcast by Avi Mash and yours truly, Anthony Ohian, talking about the stock market, the art of options trading. And each week, we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted. Got to throw a quick disclaimer out here for everyone. The thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as our Twitter account, are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or solicitation. So without further ado, Avi, let's kick it off. That's right, Tony. We want to welcome all the new pounders listening for the first time. For those of you who have been with us since week one, there's no secret that we pound the table on specific stocks week after week. And again, that is for good reason. There's a ton of research that, of course, goes into these picks. And as we know, things can change so quickly in the market. So I'm going to bring on Tony to share some of his deeper research into these top names and then also tell you what he thinks about them as of today. I'm going to do things a little bit differently, as mentioned, and bring in Tony's rule to the front of the podcast because it's extremely applicable for what he's about to talk about. Yeah, Avi, we've had an incredible run in so many of these names. And I know a lot of people have, you know, doubts and thoughts about when to buy, when to sell, when to trim, you know, when to add up. And so the rule today, and I think this rule is really just a huge rule moving forward. If you're an investor or even a trader, I think you have to be both. So the rule is, if you want to be a great long-term investor, you sure as hell better be a great trader too. There's always opportunities in the market and there's always times when the market, you know, exacerbates your gains way too far. And since we started pounding the table at the end of June, we've just had a boatload of stocks do really well, honestly, too well. So the returns this year to me have been very, very abnormal. I don't think you're going to get this kind of return year uh, for a while because, you know, the pandemic really changed a lot of companies and allowed them to blossom five years down the road, 10 years down the road of where they were expected to be. There's this huge transition to work from home, as we've mentioned many times, tech automations at an all-time high. And of course, online business traffic is getting huge for everything from e-commerce to payment processing. The question now is, what will continue to grow from this quote-unquote bunny ear pandemic pump? And what could come back down to earth a little bit once things settle down? As I always say, I never really like to worry because I always like to be prepared weeks and months before I even really have to be. So I'm going to go through all the holdings that I think are, you know, my top five strongest stocks and then five after that I think are just as strong, but might have been a little bit overstretched or had a little bit of news that makes them a little bit less appealing than the, the five I'll mention before that. I block them off into those two sections just to explain a little bit more into all the different companies. And then we'll talk a little bit about the third tier names that I think have the potential to be big game changers, but those aren't really based off of, you know, revenues or metrics. Those are just kind of a visionary stock at this point. So let's get it started, Avi. What's the first one? It's started off with anyone than our favorite C limited. So ticker symbol SE. Tony, I know you bought this at around $42. Current stock price is at 165 market cap about 80.57 billion. So you got a nice four bagger here, but you mentioned to me that you think it's going to a thousand over the next decade or so. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely my largest position. Uh, it's 
tied with Mealy, which we're going to talk about in a, in a few minutes here. I just want to explain how this company is at present day. It's basically the leading internet company in greater Southeast Asia, like hence the name SEA, you know, C, Southeast Asia. And my favorite part about this stock is that it reminds me of Tencent a few years ago. It, it is actually owned 25% of it by Tencent. So that's already huge because, you know, Tencent's a beast. They're, they're the guys, they, they throw money in Tesla, they throw money in so many other great companies. And my favorite part about C is that it's got three legs to stand on. So there's three different beast businesses all under one name that synergize together and all benefit from one another. Yeah, you were talking about, they got three different departments. Of course, they got Garena, which is their leading games in digital entertainment. Uh, they developed Free Fire, which is absolutely taking over the world, getting bigger and bigger. That game alone does about a billion in global revenue thus far, has 100 million users. So clearly they're just getting started in the game. They also have Shop E. So that's that e-commerce beast that's gonna be the leading and fastest growing e-commerce company in the region. They've got about 110% year-on-year growth just for that business alone. Then, of course, they got C-Money, which I love that name. It is an e-wallet digital finance service company. This part of their business, 282% growth year-on-year. So as you mentioned, Tony, all these companies are working together. And the best part is when you got three legs to stand on, it's uh, much harder to fall down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's definitely true, Avi. The, the, the more segments you have that can produce revenue, insulates the company overall from like specific risk of just one of their things, you know, being really damaged. Like, let's say you have a company that only does one thing and, and that sector gets really, really hit for whatever reason. That company is going to take a huge hit. All these three uh, different segments that they do, obviously, they're the big leading things. You know, gaming is huge. E-commerce is huge. Payment processing is massive now. So... I love that they're doing my three favorite sectors. I mean, if they jump into med tech, I would love this company even more, but that's the only thing that they can do to make it even better. So Avi, let's talk about some numbers here. Now, next year, they'll do 7.4 billion in revenue and lose 839 million. But in 2024, they're gonna do 15 billion in revenue and 3.5 billion in profit. So people are like, oh, why is this company worth like 82 billion now? They're losing money. Yeah, Amazon did too. Netflix, Tesla, they all did too. But you see, this is their Amazon phase. They're growing and growing and spending and spending to capture as many markets and as strongly as they possibly can. I think if they weren't losing money right now, they'd be a dumb company and I wouldn't be investing in them. And that, I know that's so counterintuitive because most people buy stocks because of the great earnings per share ratio. And that's all crap. It's all about revenue. And honestly, if this thing drops, I wouldn't even care because I know I'll just buy more. If, if we just give this a 20 times sales multiple, I think they're going to be way more profitable than anyone's predicting then it should trade close to $750 a share by 2024. Uh, so that's really like a huge growth from where it is now. And that's why I'm giving it that $1,000 price target, right? I'm not saying next year or the year after. I'm saying in four to six years, if they continue to grow on this revenue path and have an appropriate multiple, and I'm sure that they're going to continue to beat the crap out of earnings, and I'm sure they'll add more legs. This is why I'm saying $1,000 by 2025. I love the fact that they're in all three of my favorite sectors right now. And they're not just dabbling in them. I mean, 282% payment processing growth, beast. 110% e-commerce growth after you're already killing it, beast. I mean, like having Free Fire be one of the leading games in the US and all over the world, that's beast. Like that's why it's my number one holding because it's three of my favorite things in one. Let's look at its big brother, Mealy. So Mercado Libre, ticker symbol M-E-L-I. This one IPO'd at 28.50. You got in about 550. It's currently trading at 1271. You gave me a price target of 5,000. 
So Mealy is also in a similar field as SE. Of course, it's a different location than the later technology innovation parties than the US and China. So LATAM has 670 million people. So that's more than double that of the US. They have two huge distinct businesses that dominate in the area. And it's by far the biggest e-commerce, payment processing and infrastructure in LATAM. And they have a massive path to growth. So similar to SE, they're spending absolutely enormous amounts of money to grow. They've invested a ton into Mexico. They've been expanding their credit card business and prepaid card business all over the world. This thing to me is, is absolutely massive and I'm going to continue to pound the table on it. Yeah. And I think that they're going to do so much more, right? I mean, like they're developing in an area that's so far behind the rest of the world in these areas that they are the leader. I mean, like when people talk about payment processing in the US, right? They're like, oh yeah, like I'm going to swipe my Visa, I'm going to swipe my MasterCard, or I'm going to send you a Venmo or a Cash App. But this is like, let's use Mercado Pago. This is like, you want to buy something? Instead of Amazon, you go buy it on like Mealy, Mercado Libre. And in my opinion, like this is like almost like a spade is a spade. It really is a spade is a spade compared to SC, right? Like you have two different segments. And I think Mealy is honestly just getting started in terms of what they can do. And I know it's harder to upstart a company in an area with less infrastructure than Southeast Asia. You know, why wouldn't they add an entertainment or a video game segment like SC? And why wouldn't they both grow into other segments? So I see this again being another, you know, 10 cent Alibaba of that region. And there's so many people in Latin America that have yet to gain any access to the internet. And that's growing huge right now. And payment processing and e-commerce in the area is about a decade behind US and China. So if you want to get growth for something like e-commerce and technical innovation, it's not as much in the US as or China as will be in areas that haven't developed yet. Like we talked about India on a podcast a while ago. Obviously, SC is getting really heavy into India. And, you know, we talked about Mercado Libre many, many times, and they're dominating Latin America, which is another huge market just waiting to blossom. So right now they got a $62 billion in uh, market cap. And honestly, for me, that's so low. I, the only reason it's trading this low is because it's not a U.S. company. If this was a U.S. company, it would be trading at $150 billion. The next year, they're going to do $4.8 billion in revenue and $100 million in profit. But in 2024, they'll do 12.2 billion in revenue and 1.8 billion in profit. And they also always demolish earnings. I mean, this thing slaughters its earnings estimates every time. It's like the analysts have no idea how good this company is. And they always like sandbag the report estimates. So at 20 times sales, and you know, by the way, shop trades at 30 times sales and Mealy only trades at like 11 or 13 times sales now. So that would put it at about $5,000 a share by 2025 based on the 2024 estimate. So that's why I gave it that target. You saw last quarter, Mealy was expected to lose a dollar and they gained a cent. Like they, they beat EPS by a dollar while they're starting a credit card business, while they're growing into Mexico, while they're taking over Brazil and Argentina. I mean, you, you really can't find better of a company, in my opinion, and besides SC, which they're pretty much neck and neck. So shop is worth more than two times Mealy but Mealy beats it on every single metric. So Shop's revenue uh, growth is about 40%. Mealy's is 38%. Shop's enterprise value to revenue in 2022 is 28 times, but Mealy's is only nine times. And for gross profit, Shop's is 50 times next year's and Mealy's is 16. So it's a no brainer, right? You have a company that's not only gonna do more profit, more revenue, more segments of business, but at literally like 40% the valuation of shop. You've got 52% institutional ownership in Mealy. And that's also why it trades a little bit of liquid. And it, it, it is really, really good for the float to be a little smaller on a company like this because 
this is when you get those huge runs. And, and I actually do think Mealy is going to do a stock split. And I know no one's really like talking about these like smaller names, like shop, not smaller, but like relative to Amazon and Apple doing stock splits. Like I, I really do think Mealy is in a perfect position to do a stock split. And I, and I bet you if they do a four to one, it'll be 2000 uh, pre-slip before you know it. And there seems to be a common theme here. The next one we want to talk about is Square. So another payment that IPO'd at about $11 a share. So 11.20 to be exact. Tony, I know you said you traded this one since the 40s and made it a long position at 71. Currently, it's at about 186. Market cap's about 82 billion. This one is a US company. So what do you love about Square here? I mean, I think that payment processing all over the world is absolutely just a huge sector, right? Like you want to ride the trends. That's why I'm so big into e-commerce. That's why I'm so big into payment processing. That's why I'm so big into gaming now. And that's why I'm so big into med tech. But I think there's a lot of people who think MasterCard and Visa are the dominating forces. And while they are now, not everything started as a dominating force. And the way that Square is moving up in just the queue of what people are using and what they're building to allow every company to take part in this payment processing revolution and digitization of you know their entire business is huge. Like I loved PayPal over the last few years, but you know for the last year or so, I've really loved Square more just because I've seen that Square is innovating like none of them are. You know, Square is basically a payment and point of sale solution powerhouse, which is both in the US and internationally, actually. So that's huge. They have a point of sale software and hardware that lets business owners and sellers process payments and even make them digitally available when previously they were not even able to. They also got tools such as like MagStripe Reader, which is a contactless and chip reader that accepts Europay, MasterCard, Visa, and all near field communication payments. They have a system that manage payment solutions. So, and they have tons of software products for almost every industry and situation. So Square's point of sale, Square virtual terminal, Square appointments, Square for retail, restaurants, invoices, online store, loyalty, marketing, gift cards, you name it. Square has literally everything in regards to the payment. Try to say that two times fast. I mean, they're just producing everything that you can use possibly for payment processing for like the, you know, the transition of cash between people. And what, what I really like about this is people are like, well, why would anyone use Square? You've got MasterCard, Visa and PayPal. Well, you know, the thing is that Square works with MasterCard and Visa. Like th this is in addition, it's an accessory to that. It allows for MasterCard and Visa to be used more. So if you've got the two biggest names in the game working with this guy, who's like, I know it's 82 billion in market cap, but if you look at the revenue, it completely makes sense. And, and a really amazing thing too that they do is they offer a developer platform, which like allows application programming interfaces and software development kits. So they just do so much and they kill it in the managed payments, instant transfers, Square Card, Square Capital Payroll. And of course, you know, everyone uses Cash App or Venmo, but I mean, they're the ones who created Cash App. You can spend, send, store money. And they also integrated that with Bitcoin too. They also own Weebly, offering customer website hosting and domain name registrations. Plus they are really, really innovative, man. Like they're buying Bitcoin, they're getting into the crypto space, which is in my opinion, like the next wave of money period. Like I think that, that blockchain technology is gonna be the way that this is, is gonna go. Because if you think about all the printing, all the worries about like inflation, monetary losses and, and issues, like this is gonna be what's gonna be happening in the future. And I do like the fact that they're already like, buying chunks of Bitcoin and they're innovating in ways like that, because it wouldn't surprise me to see them develop digital brokerages like get into actual banking. Like we were saying, like Amazon did you know, digital, you know, online retail, and now they're creating Amazon stores. So it's like, you know, you, you go to the future, but then you bring it back to where it was to make it accessible to everyone. So I could see that happening here. And once again, this thing's got so many legs. Like I know it's all based around payment processing, 
but it's every single possible realm of payment processing. So it's the retail, it's the online, like this thing has as many legs as the other ones. It's just in a similar space, but we know that, you know, money is not going anywhere. If, if it did, we wouldn't have a podcast. So next year, they're going to do 9.3 billion in revenue, 63 million in profits. But in 2024, they'll do 15 billion in revenue and 1 billion in profits. And this thing doesn't even have that big of a price to sales ratio. Like right now they're trading under 10 times next year. And for a company that's innovating and changing so fast and like just taking the market by storm in this area, I think they're undervaluing it compared to a lot of the other bigger names. 69% is held by institution, 16% held by insiders. I mean, people don't want to let this thing go. They have 37% gross margins. And honestly, I just want to touch on that. You might say, oh, well, like all these other software companies have like 50, 60%. This is a hardware company too. And for them to be so strong into hardware, think about the revenue that they're making. You're not getting paid X and X dollars for, you know, if, if you sell a coffee, you're not getting half that coffee. You're getting just a little bit churn on that each time. So at 37% gross margins, I'm a big fan of that for the industry. And obviously the revenue continues to grow about 50%. So really right now, I mean, I think it's undervalued and I think it's going to be the, you know, it's going to make MasterCard and Visa look like VHS. I'll put you on the spot here. Well, you got a price target for this one? I mean, this one also goes to a thousand in my mind. And I think it's less and less about the actual valuation and numbers. I just think we're going to see a lot of parts of the world who, you know, still have those like clunky manual cash registers I used to see in my dad's store when I was like 10. And I think that this is just going to be the fuel that allows so many different countries and different companies all over the world to innovate and, and get into that digital space. You think like what Shopify is doing, it lets anyone have a business from their computer. Now this is going to let anyone who has a business rake in way more money because as you know, cash is becoming less and less of a thing that people use. You're using your credit card, you're using your Apple Pay, and, and it's all just becoming more and more digital. And this is that digital transformation, but you can't go from VHS to a DVD without hitting Blu-ray. So this is getting everything in between. So Tony, you've been putting in little seeds here throughout the podcast talking about med tech, right? So let's transition over to Livongo and TDoc. And since they literally are merging together, we'll talk to them together. You've been massive on Livongo. I think a bull since about $25 a share. I got in a little bit later, but it's now near $150 a share. So that makes it one of my biggest gainers in my life and one of my favorite companies. We did see the stock dive a little bit, but now it's come back to its high as a result of the merger with Teladoc. Under the terms of the agreement, for those of you who are unaware, between these two companies, Livongo shareholders will receive 0.592 shares of Teladoc for each of the Livongo shares that they own. In addition, they're also going to receive cash of 11.33 for each Livongo share. Yeah, and on the Livongo side, I mean, that company for me was a beast in itself. And I think I would have stayed heavily in Livongo and probably never got into Teladoc. I mean, I traded Teladoc when it was about 100 and during the coronavirus uh, spike that it had, I was trading it through options. But Livongo for me just seems like it was higher margins, higher growth. And, and that's what I look for, obviously. And, and I know that monitoring health is a huge industry. And I didn't know how far actual Teladoc would go in the near future. I mean, obviously, in my mind, I think things years in the future. So I think like, okay, we're going to have like robotic doctor drones that come in and like, inspect your body with a scan and tell you, okay, like you have a benign tumor in your leg, let me like sign up for an operating kit and just go in and 
go into an ISRG machine and get that taken care of in three hours and you're back to health perfectly in like a day. But you know, anyway, on the Livongo side, this company's breaking heavily into the big league. It just signed contracts with four Fortune 100 companies this year. And together, Teladoc and Livongo just partnered with Guidewell, which reaches 27 million people in 35 states, and Florida Blue, which covers 4 million people in 16 states. And they're integrating coverage together. So the world, like these big healthcare providers are realizing that you need telehealth. They're putting them together in the package for their health plans. It's like, it's like getting drafted and like going off the bench and playing into the big leagues with the other guys. Like, you know, you were sitting on the bench ready to rock and, and they just said, all right, put me in coach. I'm ready to go. And now you're in every healthcare plan because you know that you're worth it and you can get the touchdown when you need to. And as telehealth transitions from a nice to have benefit to an essential form of care delivery, payers are going to have to make some adjustments in order to permanently integrate the telehealth coverage expansion plans. So in my opinion, telehealth is going to transition and it already is from a nice to have, you know, benefit during the pandemic to an essential form of care delivery. And, and payers are going to have to make some adjustments in order to permanently integrate the telehealth coverage expansions with the already existing, you know, Medicare, like healthcare enrollment plans. So an early analysis of COVID-19 telehealth utilization that was published in May 2020 found that approximately 20% of all Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial outpatient office and home health care spend could transition to virtual care. And that equates to around $250 billion worth of care. That's, I mean, that's a huge market for a company that's like about 35 billion right now merged together. So specifically 35% of home health care and 24% of office visits and 20% of emergency department visits could be virtualized easily. So this data is telling you like, this is where we're going in the future. And I think if you miss this trend, you really don't understand the health sector at all, because regardless of, you know, the, the healthcare plans that come, whether it's, you know, Biden or Trump or, or whatever it is, you know that doctors are inefficient. You know that going to the doctor's office, scheduling a surgery, even if you just have a bump on your knee or whatever it is, and especially if you have mental health, the system is screwed up and it's hard to get exactly what you need at the right time and at the right price. This is an all-in-one solution using technology, of course, which is where everything's going. And, and that's why I'm so bullish on the med tech sector in general, because we, we've really gotten huge into software and e-commerce payment processing. But what people care as much about money, hopefully, maybe hopefully they should more, is their bodies, right? Like if you want to be healthy and you don't want to spend as much money. I mean, I, I spend a lot of money on my like bed because I know I spend a third of my life in there, right? So you're going to spend whatever you want to get more access to medical care in a more convenient fashion and in a cheaper fashion too. Health is wealth, Tony. Without your health, mm-hmm. you, get, you could have billions of dollars, but you need your health in order to, to spend it, of course. <laughs> to your point, right? Like Corona was just the, the impetus to even make this go way further. So this was already going to be a trend. It was already integrated exactly. into healthcare, but with the pandemic, similar to e-commerce, it just accelerated that tenfold, right? You can see this demand start to increase. And in fact, there's a stat from 2018, obviously before the the pandemic, AHIP estimated that payers are also saving $6 billion annually by promoting remote healthcare and teledoc options, right? And I talked to doctors and they love it too, especially given the pandemic. They don't want a ton of patients coming in that potentially have COVID. As a patient, you don't want to necessarily sit in the doctor where other people could have COVID as well, right? And so these services are gonna become massive. And then add in Livongo Health, of course, which can then monitor your body. This is my most bullish stock, personally. Honestly, I know that Essie and Mealy are my, are my absolute favorite ones, but I mean, th- these are just all three and Square, of course, like all four of these, this is why they're in our top five. They're so close together and how great they are. And, and I know that they're you know, overlapping industries, but 
I mean, if you look at the entire market, I can't really pick any other stocks that I think are so, so, you know, necessary for the future and the growth is there the need is there and the convenience is there and of course like i mean you got to think about the shutdowns and and how much that's impacted people's behavioral and mental health and like the demand for that was inescapable and even over the last five years i mean you've seen this huge shift at least in the u.s and finally europe which is so bad about mental health trust me i know like i mean my family's completely european they almost don't care about it over there and like the u.s is finally on the forefront of it and i think so many people have been affected by COVID. of course physically, but we really rarely talk about how many people have mental issues now because of COVID. I mean, like people are inside all the time. People could have lost family members, lost their jobs. And the ramifications for that just go down the road so far. So you want to get that help. And you can't go see a therapist as much. You can call your therapist. You can talk to a doctor, schedule your psychiatry appointments or whatever you need to make yourself feel better. And I think this is the best way to do it. And I think a lot of people have reservations about getting help in general. I mean, like, you know, I've been to therapy before and I, I know that going in person is way, way more daunting and honestly makes you shy versus, you know, talking to someone over a, a medical robot or something that that's a very big difference. And that's going to expand that sector that is in need of much expansion hugely. And so we'll talk about the merger synergy here, which is absolutely insane. The crossover between these companies in terms of like customers and revenue was only about 25%. So together, they're going to pretty much quadruple their base and revenues. And I think that a lot of the earnings estimates and analysts just don't have this right. They're going to be way, way more than each projected for the coming years like on their own. So here's just an example of this, you know, just to put into numbers terms, Livongo added a partnership with Teladoc client Guidewell Health. So this is already that synergy starting to take place. And so they're, they're going to bring Livongo for diabetes to 50,000 Florida Blue members under their cross-selling agreement, which, I mean, I just love this merger. If we factor in a 35% 12-month enrollment rate, that's already 17,500 more Livongo members. And here's the real kicker. They were only projected to do 13,000 by 2022. So you can see that it's like combining like the two, it's like Michael Jordan and LeBron James playing basketball together. I mean, it's just, how are you going to beat that? unless you're a Golden State, but then you're going to give up a three-game lead. <laughs> it's just another example of why the potential synergies are understated. I mean, and, and that's on top of the 40 to 45% pre-synergy sales growth next year. Uh, a lot of credit to Richard Chu again, because he wrote a lot of great threads on this, and he's on Twitter. Definitely give him a follow, and he knows everything that's going on with these two, and I, I look to him for a lot of information. The merged company is worth about $35 billion. They are the bar none leaders in this space. I mean, you've got health monitoring and health practices together, and I mean, what we just said, like the synergies is going to make it three or four times better than it was. And the revenues are just going to grow nonstop. And obviously before this, Livongo's revenue growth was already 114% year over year. So for me, this is like a Tesla situation in an industry that's just as big. Yeah, Tony, I absolutely love Livongo. I think the biggest thing there is going to be some of these partnerships with insurance companies. I just don't see a world where insurance companies aren't salivating, thinking about preventative health and making sure that people don't ultimately get diabetes or making sure that it's under control and all of that. There's so much money at stake here for insurance companies if they don't actually have to pay out. Coming back to tech, another one you had mentioned is DDOG. So Datadog, ticker symbol D-D-O-G. You pounded the table on this one as a classic quote unquote spade as a spade at $36. You mentioned when T. Rowe Price bought almost all of the outstanding shares of the secondary offering of DocuSign, the stock absolutely exploded. Then they did the exact same thing here with Datadog. Now look at it, it's about $113 a share. 
And for those of you who are unaware of what Datadog does, they monitor all cloud applications for companies through analyzing data, monitoring servers, tools, database, and various services to help companies maximize the performance and improve their overall user experience. The revenue growth was 86% year over year before COVID, obviously dipped a little bit down to 68% during the pandemic last quarter. They did recently partner with Azure, which is absolutely massive. Microsoft is becoming a data powerhouse and they would not use Datadog unless they thought that they were the leader in their class. And, and the reason why Datadog is in my top five is because so many other stocks have ran so much. And I know that Datadog for a lot of people is highly valued. And even when it was 36, people were saying it's highly valued. Their trailing year revenue was about 480 million. That's not crazy based on where they are right now for a software company. And the market cap is now 34 billion. So it gives it about a 37 time multiple over next year's revenue. But I do expect them to demolish estimates with their new partnership. And as COVID improves, which deeply in my heart, I believe that it will, you just don't know when, but as I always say, the world only ends once and I don't think it's going to be this time, buddy. Um, I bet their real value for next year is under a 30 times multiple. Analysts always give their opinions and their, their observations for themselves, but there's no difference between an analyst or you or me. And I think that I've actually had a much better hit rate than the majority of these analysts. I mean, there's an analyst database that you can go and look and you can see how many of them give crap reports and crap estimates. And the number is staggering. I mean, there's so many people who give bad estimates because they just cannot factor in and can't see the vision for a company and where it's going to go. And obviously, if Microsoft's partnering with them, they see the vision. By no means, a 30 times multiple is crazy right now in this market, which is transitioning more and more with this deep obsession to cloud, software, high growth tech names. I mean, just look at Snowflake and Zoom, for example. Those two companies have such crazy multiples, but everyone's obsessed with them. Everyone wants in a Snowflake, huge backers. Everyone wants in a Zoom. It's taking over and it's the standard video messaging conferencing app now. And I don't think that's going to go away. So in my opinion, this partnership with Microsoft is definitely going to bring in a ton of new customers for Datadog. And this is what the VP of Microsoft said word for word. He said, the Microsoft Cloud is the first to enable a seamless configuration and management experience for customers using third-party solutions like Datadog. With Datadog, Customers are empowered to use this experience to monitor their reserve workloads and enable an accelerated transition to cloud. So they're just saying Datadog is going to help us move this thing that's already going to be moving to the cloud way, way faster. So let's just say that they grow at 100% a year for the next three years. I mean, if they're projecting 86% normally, they've got this big Microsoft partnership now, which is sure to add a lot to that baseline. And I'm sure that they're going to have a new customers and future partnerships because you don't just land Microsoft, one of the kings of the valley. They believe in it so strongly. You're not going to just not add the other big boys over time. In the next 12 months, they'll be doing about a billion or so in sales, then 2 billion, then 3 billion if we just do that growth rate that I was saying over the next few years. So if we just keep it at a 25 times multiple, which honestly makes sense because of all these partnerships. And I know that there's going to be more in the future because once you land the whale, you know, all the whales scream together then the stock can easily double again in the next year or so. And I do like this name a lot because there's so many cloud stocks, software stocks that are really, really volatile. And while this one does move, it doesn't move like the other ones do. It has a lot more strength behind it. And you can see that every day when it's trading. And if you're going to be in a company, you want to, first of all, be in the best, especially in a high valued sector. And you want to be in one that you know is not going to just have a 40% drop in a day. So this is why it's in my top five, because I do want to have that cloud software exposure heavily in here. It, it, it's an easy stock to hold on to because it doesn't give you that worrisome feeling. And you know that they're just going to be crushing it in revenue and new partnerships. So we made the analogy, these stocks we just discussed to be kind of like an oil tanker, right? It's going to take a lot to bring those down. 
Whereas other stocks we love, such as Nanox and some of these high growth, very quick stocks, they're going to go up faster. They're going to move very quickly. They're kind of like a jet ski, more or less. So I don't know if you like that analogy, Tony, but that was what I just thought about here. Yeah, no, I definitely like that analogy, right? Like you want to be stronger on the wave. And it, and it's not just also about being a big ship, right? The Titanic sank, but you can just still be a monster of a ship if you're built well. So what I just listed, these five holdings, those are now my top five holdings. And I know I've had a lot of different companies and I'm like, okay, this is in my top five. I love this stuff. But things change, right? Like five are doubled. And that for me means like, okay, maybe it's not in my top five anymore because I had to sell some because it did so well already. But if any of these stocks dive, like these will be the first ones that I buy. And I'm not even worried about them diving because they have so many legs to stand on. Like Datadog with Microsoft, that thing has solidified it so strongly, which is why you saw that big jump in the name. You've got Teladoc and Livongo taking over the entire healthcare space. Square Inc. taking over the entire payment processing all over the world. You've got Mealy dominating Latin America with payment processing and e-commerce. And you've got C, which is the new Tencent, in my opinion, for gaming, e-commerce, payment processing. And I bet you they're going to add a few more legs. So these top five are going to be my top five. And I don't think that the valuations on any of these are crazy either. I mean, you, they have really good revenue. They have really good projections to make profit. They have great partnerships. They have great leads in all these industries that they're in. So that's why they're my top five. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be stocks that perform better than these. Like maybe you'll have a stock that goes two or 300% in a few months. And, and that's all great and stuff. But for me, these are the, the best companies and the safest. And sometimes like, that means that they're going to have a little bit higher market cap now of course, I got in all these names well, well, way, way, way lower than they are now. But I still like them for the future because the reason they've ran so much is people see this growth. There's tangible data. There's tangible moats. I mean, these things are the beast leaders. I would be remiss personally to sell any of these, even if I believe that there's risk going down the market, because if they do drop, I will literally just leverage and buy more. So let's talk about the stocks that right now I'm a little less confident on, and it's not in terms of the company in general, right? So it's mostly because maybe they've ran too much. Maybe the management's doing something that I don't really love, or maybe there's a competitor who's come out and beasted against the stock recently and has changed my opinion. So you have to be able to adapt in this market. So we'll jump into all those stocks in this section. We're tapping the table still. But once the time gets better for them again, we'll pound it properly. One of those that's on everyone's mind, just because how crazy this thing has moved, is of course Fastly. So ticker symbol FSLY. This one IPO'd around $24. You pounded the table at 22. So you got that right after the little dip and rolled that all the way up to its peak at about 136.50. Fast is currently at 84.67. For those of you who do not know what Fastly's business is, they are a CDN. CDN stands for Content Delivery Network, which in its most dumbed down version, this allows the internet to be faster for you. And they do this by ensuring that the data is gonna be distributed to the closest data center, which minimizes any delays or increases speed. So if you think about it being in New York, if I'm on a company in, in Southeast Asia, it will ping a data center that is closer to New York. So the internet then appears faster for me. And of course, you know, everything's moving online, more and more traffic everywhere. So you want that speed to be fast and that's just gonna continue to grow and grow over time. And so I did ride fastly. Like it's, I think one of my third biggest, probably my third biggest gain of the year in terms of percent. But I do now have a couple issues with it. So I wanted to touch on that. And I, of course, I didn't have these issues with it last week or the week before. But things change in the market all the time. And I know that you, you can't really fall in love with a stock. You know, like you can love them, but it's you have to break up with them when they do something bad to you. You know, so it's just like life and friendships and relationships. So 
You know, the thing I love about Fastly, of course, and I'll, and I'll tell you the good things and then I'll tell you the bad things now. So the companies that are customers of it, you know, I, those are the beasts, right? Like, I mean, you have just the absolute best in the tech space as partners and customers. You've got Spotify, Google, Amazon, Shopify, Etsy, Pinterest, Twitter, Slack, many more. But what it's showing now is concerning is that customers in that large concentration size can be an issue. Of course, we've talked about TikTok on this podcast many, many times, and that's still causing a problem with them. In fact, that's the reason why they went down on their earnings. I think they took out the TikTok revenue estimations because they, you know, they, they think that that's going to be a big issue. And of course, you know, they wanted to make sure that that wasn't overstated because that would hurt them a lot more in the future uh, if they didn't do that as soon as possible, let everyone know what that's going to be doing to their finances. Granted, they did buy Signal Sciences. That's a huge acquisition for them, in my opinion. I think that's going to be a big game changer for them moving forward. And that's going to be about 10% and more of their revenue for the next year and quarter. So, and I don't think that that's been factored in properly because they just merged a few weeks ago. I think that they're honestly sandbagging their revenue guidance and their uh, estimations for the next quarter and year. And I think that with Signal Sciences, they're going to have a higher gross margin once all that really synergizes because Signal Sciences itself has a much higher gross margin on their revenue and what they're doing, what they're selling than just Fastly as is. So, they still weren't able to land enough new customers this period uh, to make up for that likely TikTok loss on their balance sheet, even though they knew it would be an issue for the last few months. So that for me is an issue, right? Like if I was CEO of Fastly and I saw that this was happening and I was like, man, TikTok's going to cause us some issues. We need to land some customers now. It doesn't matter if they're huge. We need to get those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers, like Wolf of Wall Street style. So we have to get those numbers up. And I think that they took another approach, which is even more like hardening to you know make the stock go up in this time is like signal sciences while it is a beast acquisition you know what happens with stocks and mergers and acquisitions especially at a time of turmoil in their own balance sheet in terms of tiktok so granted it was a fantastic partnership that will like like we said with levongo and teledoc will make them be way better in the coming years the timing for me was a tough thing uh, because I would have probably spent that 700 million or so dollars really trying to get those customers up because I knew I was going to lose TikTok. So maybe it was just the right time to buy Signal Sciences. Maybe they needed it because they're going to transition into that cloud front optimized edge that they're supposed to be rolling out next year. But some of their original customers that haven't gotten blacklisted like TikTok and Bydance, they've slowed down usage also. So it's, it's a bit surprising considering how well many of these top customers have done Really, I think Fastly should have had really great revenue on this report. And it's surprising and honestly disheartening for me to see that they didn't, especially like they're not like a new company that just started. You know, everyone loves this name. Everyone follows this name, but they're, they're not living up to the standards. And that you have to take into consideration. You can love a stock, but if that happens, you really need to reconsider a little bit and dig deeper to know why that's happening. So even though they only lower their guidance by 2 million or so in revenues for this quarter, the quarter three of 2020, the stock dropped almost 30% on that news. So people are not happy to hold this deeply, like SE or Mealy or you know Square, if those things drop, people will buy that dip quickly, in my opinion. But Fastly, you know, it's going to need better news to take it higher. So it's not as loved as people think, which for me is that's off, off-putting because I want to be in stocks that are loved because I know that there's strength in numbers and there's strength in people loving a stock. Like I'm happy to ride volatility, but it shows me that there are weak hands, of course. And, you know, there's doubts in the business model, even though I am positive that Edge Cloud will be the future. I really also don't like how they chose to pre-announce after the founder's schedule share sales date. So you know, they pre-announced after the founders got their uh, high price for Fastly stock sales. So that I, I didn't like that. I thought that was shady. I mean, maybe 
you know, it, it was it was clever for them, of course, but it, it does. It's not a good look. I also didn't like that they just did a 5.6 million shelf offering, but that is to cover the Signal Sciences sale. But just in general, you know, people are not going di- to like dive that deep into what that means. They're going to think, oh, they're offering 5.6 million shares, not that they're selling some of the insider shares to buy Signal Sciences, which is, you know, what that acquisition would mean that they have to do. In terms of their revenue, they're going to do 338 million revenue and 69 million in loss next year. Just overall now, like I'm not feeling as good about it. It makes me feel uneasy. And when that happens for me, I usually dump a stock. So I'm happy that I wrote it from 22 to 136. And, you know, I had the 120 puts because I've I've been saying on Twitter many times that I'm hedging all these huge high flyers. And I really got lucky because they pre-announced and I didn't lose a dollar because I had those puts. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to sell Fastly here, honestly, uh, to buy into the next one we're going to be talking about, because over the last week, this for me became Fastly 2.0 and you have to be adaptable. So Avi, what are we talking about here? Before we do so though, Tony, I know you mentioned you're going to be selling Fastly. So, you know, on Friday, I closed at right under 85, 84, 67 to be exact. Are you, are you going to want this to go back to 100 and then sell, or are you ready to, to ditch this now? Right. So that's, that's a fantastic question. Well, you know, I, like I just said, I had those puts. So if I were to sell here, it's basically like I'm selling at 120, which would make me comfortable. But I do know that a stock drops 30% plus, and only with $2 million in change of their revenue estimate, it's not a huge deal for me to think it's going to drop 60%. So you know, it's down 30% from its highs. I'm going to hold it now only because net which is what we're going to be talking about, has already run about 30% in the last few weeks. And I did catch it at 55, started adding a heavy position again. And I was in that from 22 and I sold it at 42 because it wasn't moving. And now Fastly is not really moving in the right direction. So you've got these two beasts of companies that are in this space as leaders. And so for Fastly, you know, I think that the best thing for me to do is to find a good exit point and maybe hold on to a portion of my shares because things can change again to the upside. It was a beast company going forward, you know, looking great in all metrics then this thing happened. And so maybe it can come back and be even stronger. That's happened many times to many companies. You know, Tesla almost went bankrupt a decade ago. So you've got to be able to be watching these and be, you know, cognizant of if things change, how you'll react. This is when you hedge, like this is when you buy weekly puts, you know, a week or two out or whatever, just to make sure, especially going into the fact that they can pre-announce earnings. And I don't think that a lot of these stocks are going to go up on their earnings. And, I, and it's because people have the data from the last quarter. They're able to you know, look at that data and, and extrapolate from it and know what's going to be happening this quarter. So I think a lot of the ones that we're going to be talking about in the next few minutes have a lot of this priced in. So that's why they're in the less confident side, not because of their companies, except for Fastly as a, a model in general, but because of where they are right now. So I will you know, probably wait to sell Fastly back over a hundred or so, but when that happens, I will put those proceeds mostly into net. You're talking about Cloudflare, ticker symbol being net, N-E-T. They just rolled out their Cloudflare One. That's going to be their comprehensive cloud-based network solution. And that's designed to be secure, fast, reliable, and define the future of corporate networking. So This is actually going to replace a patchwork of appliances and wand technologies with a single network that then provides this cloud-based security, performance, and control. So it's not just going to be the typical CDN, right? Yeah, I I just think this is like a huge innovation just in terms of the entire sector, like the edge cloud network. This is this is the biggest thing that's happened so far to it. And so this is exact. This is right from Cloudflare's uh, website. They said this is why we're incredibly excited to announce that Cloudflare One takes the the power of Cloudflare's network and combines it with the best of breed identity management and device integrity to create a complete solution encompassing the entire corporate network of today and tomorrow. 
So they're trying to be the one-stop shop for this revolutionary edge network, this edge cloud shift that's going to be happening over the coming years as data becomes bigger and bigger. And, you know, and you're going to have so much more you know, information and data to move around. The internet's going to continue to grow, obviously. They're literally dropping new additions to this platform every day now. They just added Magic Firewall a couple of days ago. It's a network level firewall integrated with Cloudflare One. And it gives you a one-stop overview of everything happening on the network. So I think that they're going to continue to roll out things nonstop, I think, for the next few weeks and possibly for like the rest of time. Maybe they could just be developing a master platform on this thing that they just rolled out. These guys are partnered with CrowdStrike, Okta, Ping Identity, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, and Microsoft. So they also have Beast partnerships. $538 million in rev last year and a $96 million loss. But... This recent news has changed everything. This news changed everything. You know, I think that you have to be able to change on a dime. And when something like this comes out, you have to just try to be unbiased, unstubborn, and realize that, hey, like this is probably a better opportunity now in terms of long-term companies. Sure, you know, this is one of those times where you have to be a trader and investor because you'll probably get a better gain over Fastly over the coming weeks as it rebounds. But long-term, I think Net's better companies. So I can have more conviction with Net, buy more shares. You know, it's going to hold better and it probably won't have those 30, 40% drops like Fastly will. Reminds me of that meme with the guy with his girlfriend. So the girlfriend's like Fastly and then the girl that's walking past is, is Yes, net. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, need, and it happens fast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the next one we let's talk about is Fiverr. So I know me and you have battled back and forth, back and forth on this one. They IPO'd at 31. Uh, you got that at 94. It is now at $173. And that happened in one month, I think, Avi, which is insane. I mean, I, I, I am so bullish on Fiverr over the next decade or so. Genuinely, probably number one bullishness out of any stock. But that doesn't mean I think it's a good buy right now, you know, in my opinion and like in terms of what I'm doing, I actually sold 60% of my Fiverr only because it doubled in a month. And while I think this company is going to be just the game changer for this gig economy space, when things run so hard, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, it's possible for them to come back down to earth. It had such a huge run in the last month, but... I think that now I, I'm a little bit skeptical of like how it can run in the in the short term. I think that when a stock goes 100% in four weeks, you just got to reassess right there. I did sell about half of my Fiverr last week over 170 just because I think I'm going to be able to get a better price for it in the coming weeks. And earnings are coming up, I think, in, in a week or two. So I, I, I doubt that they're going to have a huge upside surprise in the stock price, even if the earnings do beat, because in my opinion, it would probably be priced in. So let's just talk about Fiverr. It's the freelance marketplace for digital and physical services and goods. Their e-commerce portion will also expand, in my opinion. And that's just really getting started. And I believe so many reputable companies will sign on with the Fiverr business account and provide services through Fiverr. But alas, this is the vision aspect that is not priced in yet. And it's why I don't really care for valuations right now, uh, even though it's at a pretty decent valuation, because in my opinion, there's so much more that's going to come with this company. And it's really... In my, I just think of it as a startup, even though it's like really strong, it's got a lot of buyers, a lot of sellers on the thing. It's still not in that space of we're really huge and established. We're doing all that we can. I mean, there's a lot of room for change, growth and innovation here. With that being said, though, pounded it at 92, it hit 180. That is the only reason, in my opinion, I've got on the more risky side of our list today. Uh, if it goes back to 130, 150, once again, it'll be moved back into the like um, super bullish pound in the table. It's just where it is right now is what's worrying me a bit. Regardless, this is probably one of my biggest pounds for the coming decade. It's just worrisome that it went vertical. 
I think the revenues are great, in my opinion, grew 82% in quarter two, 2020. Gross margins are at 83%, which is really amazing. I mean, to get your revenue and margins so high and in line, and margins over like 50% are crazy. At 83%, it's amazing. So it's all about growth here. And if you think about where they were at like 10 years ago, I, and, and I think that's where the discrepancy was back and forth, because I used them 10 years ago, and I thought it was like a little fun gig. I remember everything was priced at five, so hence the name Fiverr. It's like how dollar stores now sell things more than a dollar. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, since 2011, that $5 price limit, though, was removed. The growth has been like astronomical. So in 2011, Fiverr had, I think, 100,000 buyers. In 2014, they had a million buyers. 2018, 5 million buyers. So insane growth. And at the end of 2019, they had 5.5 million buyers. 250 plus categories in 160 countries. And that's before the pandemic. So this gig economy is now obviously a massive beast. And as you mentioned, their margins are increasing too. So from 81% to 84% from Q1 in 2020 to Q2 of 2020. So they've added over 300,000 new customers in, in just that quarter. So I think you may be onto something here, Tony. I, I, I really do think I am. And, and this is just, I mean, this slaps Upwork and I'll explain why in a second, but in general, the freelance market is becoming huge in the U.S. It contributes $1.2 trillion to the economy, a 22% increase from 2019, and now 36% of the workforce in the U.S. has done some type of freelance work in the last 12 months. That is a big part of the U.S. workforce. So this number really blows my mind. 50% of Gen Z, so people aged 18 to 22, have freelanced in the last 12 months. And 36% of that 50% just started during the pandemic. So like, right, like you get online, you realize you can make hundreds of dollars for doing voice impersonations every week. So why would you stop that? You know, like some people are going to latch onto that. That's that exponential base that we're talking about. Like people see that they can make money, I mean, readily, easily in the comfort of their own home, doing something that they're passionate about. That could be so random, but that makes Fiverr money and that makes them money. So why would they stop doing that? Even if they get a job, like you could still do voice impersonations at lunch and make a couple hundred bucks for fun. Uh, company hiring managers are also getting heavy into the independent contracting gig economy. 73% of them are increasing their use of independent professionals in the last 12 months. So you've got big companies being like, okay, I need to hire someone, but I don't need them a lot of the time. I just want to obviously keep minimizing my costs and just farm out a job or two. So this is why this is going to be a huge thing, in my opinion. If you want to compare this between Upwork, which I know is one of your favorites, I'll tell you why it's apples to oranges, peaches to pears. Because Fiverr had 61 million visitors in August 2020 versus 43 million in March. That's a 42% increase and average duration on their page, 23 minutes, 9.3 pages. Meanwhile, Upwork only counted 33 million from 30 million, so only a 10% increase. And the average duration uh, was about half that of Fiverr's on the site and 8.4 pages. So it's clear who the winner is and it's clear who's you know way, way behind it, which is Upwork. Fiverr spent Spending uh, per buyer is also going nuts. In 2012, it was 64 uh, per buyer. In 2017, it's 119. And in 2020, it's 184. So they've really come a long way from that $5 price target. What my favorite part, though, of Fiverr is they're actually getting away from just that like gig independent, me and you buying, you know, these little gigs. And they're moving into Fiverr business. So that part is bringing it more into like the SaaS solution. So it's about yes. 149 dollars a year right they're starting that subscription model and that to me and i'm in SaaS. 
that is where these companies just start to absolutely rake in money. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be like, you know, you think of uh, WeWork, right? So you have all these companies working under one roof and like that obviously has so many overhead costs, pun intended, but on Fiverr, right? Like you can have a company online just paying people and you don't have to worry about like any health benefits and how long they're working there in your two week notice or whatever, right? You don't like someone's work. You can just pick someone else easily. You can start a complete company off of Fiverr and it would be really, really not that difficult. So the reason this beast can get the biggest gains out of all the companies I mentioned here um, previously is because it's only a $6 billion market cap. And going to 50 to 100 billion in five to 10 years for a company like this as the gig economy leader and as the gig economy expands so crazy is not that hard in my opinion. So on a valuation level, they're worth about 6 billion again. And, and in 2021, they're going to do 247 million in revenue and 2.5 million in profit. I really do think it's going to be so, so much more. I don't think these analysts are factoring it improperly. They're not factoring the Fiverr uh, business thing, which is going to be huge. And a lot of people barely even know that they do e-commerce, right? Like people, it's like Etsy, even more personalized. You have such strong details you can share with people. Like you can tell them exactly what you want made. So that's going to be, I think, rolling into a bigger and bigger space as well. Um, and Fiverr destroys EPS estimates by an average of 67% over the last three quarters. That's like a consistent beat like that is very, very rare to find for a company. And like, I just want to touch again, like we said, this analysts use all this public data to make their own assessments and they can often be too high or too low. And I think it's really, really too low in this case. So in 2022, they're going to do 323 million in revenue and 16.6 million in profit, which is again, I think lower by a third to a half in my opinion. So let's just say they do 300 million in rev next year. Cause I think that's low balling it for me. And put it at a 20 times price to sales ratio, which is really like not even anything for this space. So I believe Fiverr, as I said, is not only going to grow their e-commerce like massively, as many people begin selling these personalized items like Etsy, they're going to move in an Amazon-like way of creating you know, digital jobs and, and digital companies online. So it's just going to deeply integrate it with these physical services too. So that just still needs to be done by hand. So I think that it's going to be a technical, almost Angie's list, right? So you'll have these online digital services and then you'll have you know people applying for jobs in the area locally that you can you know find on fiverr like angie's list and you know work from there too i think they haven't even touched on that yet so once they realize it's going to have multiple legs i think people will really give it a much different multiple and give it a much higher valuation knowing that it's going to be like a, a shop like marketplace for local and national service providers through partnerships like shop and amazon do so the potential is honestly limitless for me and the price of sales really could easily go from 20 to 30. And on top of a 50% revenue beat next year, I think it's really, really undervalued if you predict like it's going to be way better than people are expecting it to be. Um, and I think that if you really just give it what I think it's going to be going, doing in 2022, it should be doing about 500 million in revenue versus a 330 million estimate. And if you give it a higher multiple, once people factor in all these new things that they're going to be bringing on, that gives it about a $15 billion valuation by the end of 2021, which puts the stock at 450 to 500. So you might say it's crazy a stock going from 90 to 500, but how many like cheap stocks have you seen go 5, 10, 20 X? This is not like Mealy going to 20,000. That's a huge difference. Going from five to 50 billion and 50 to 500 billion is a very big difference. You did mention Etsy just recently, and this is the last one here kind of in this thematic area that we're looking at. 
So Etsy IPO'd at 27.58. You added it at about 46, traded it a little bit around, but then you actually really finally made it a position at about 96. So it's currently at a little under 150, 147.59, at a market cap of 17.61. This was one that we pounded the table on. I think it was a two to three episodes ago. Yeah, I mean, I've been very long this name since the 90s, just as a long-term hold. And I know a lot of people are worried about uh, growth slowing down and the stock dropping back to earth. Everyone's saying that this is all just because people were buying COVID designer masks on Etsy. But let me tell you why I don't think that these people are right, at least to the degree that they think that they're right. For those of you who are new to this name, Etsy is an e-commerce platform where people can sell handmade and vintage products and crafts. So this name got put on everyone's radar last quarter, uh, especially with the pandemic's shift to e-commerce, when its revenue grew to $428 million, and that's a 137% year-over-year increase in revenue growth. They got about a billion in cash, $1.2 billion in assets, only $279 million in liability. And I know there's been a lot of quote unquote masked theorists just around this specific stock. And what I mean by that is everyone just thought that they've been growing so high only just because of masks. I was laughing at that, but non-mask sales were up 93% year on year. GMV grew an average of 151%. So guys, it's not just masks. There's a lot of huge categories here like homeware, furniture, jewelry, accessories, beauty, personal care. My fiance is on that site every single day, finding some new custom thing for uh, one of her friend's weddings and so forth. A number of these loyal customers increased 55%. So as we mentioned on that last episode, Pinterest is growing insanely. And 40% of Etsy's traffic comes directly from Pinterest. So I love that little tidbit that Etsy now enables sellers also to upload personally made videos to showcase their product, which adds another element, right? So you can save your favorite items like on Pinterest as well. I smell a merger. I know, Tony, this is something that you thought of. So if it happens... (laughs) This is the man you guys think. We want to talk about valuation and estimates. I mean, Etsy is projected to do $1.5 billion in revenue this year and $262 million in profit. But here's the thing that really kind of like makes me think that analysts need to read a book. Uh, but for 2021, the estimates are expected to only be $1.7 billion in revenue and $280 million in profit. So I think that they're just nuts and they're, they're dead wrong to think that it's going to grow like a little bit over 10% knowing that it first of all grew 35% year over year before the pandemic. And with this exponential base, like let's just assume that it's going to do at least 50% if you have half a brain and know how to do any analysis. Like I keep saying this and you do, I mean, you're saying it too, exponential bases still exponentiate at higher levels, even if it's less than when that base was formed. So at 50% rev growth from this year, which I'm going to slap that on, it's not the real number. It's just what I think that they'll do. They're going to do 2.55 billion in revenue next year and 450 million or so in profit in 2021. At a current market cap of 17.5 billion today, it's really now trading at 6.9 times next year's estimates. So not the number I just said, what people are thinking. It really makes me laugh out loud, honestly, because shop's going to trade at 37 times next year's price to sales. Big C is going to trade at 39 times. And even my favorite baby Mealy is going to trade at 13 times. And that is why I love Melia. Once again, you know, it's so much better and cheaper than shop in terms of like numbers and growth. It's silly that people own shop and not Melia. So let's just assume the mass bear thesis people wake up and realize that they're wrong by the end of next year. And they're going to give Etsy a justified 10 times multiple. In 2022, they'll be doing about 3 billion in revenue if you want to assume that 50% growth for the next two years. And I'm actually undercutting that revenue number even by less than 50%. And once again, they were doing 35 before this, 35% before this anyway. So we're taking off about 90% of that 137% growth last quarter. So the stock should be worth 
about 34 billion by the end of next year if we just give it like a little bit of hope against these mass theorists who think it's going to go back to completely normal and actually worse growth than before the pandemic, which means the stock will be about $300 plus by the end of 2021. And in my opinion, I, I really don't see that not happening. I think that people will continue to learn that analysts are just like you and me, and everyone has an opinion. And I, I think analysts are really not great most of the time. We've been getting super in depth here with a lot of these stocks we're discussing. Let's just take a little leap over here to med tech quickly. I know that's been a huge sector. Other areas besides SaaS and besides technology, which we're always talking about, you see this as kind of the next SaaS in terms of SaaS-like moves in this sector. Uh, one of my personal favorites, let's talk about first, is, is CRISPR. Yeah, and so, I mean, this medical sector, I think we're starting to see that really, you know, people are going to get interested in the fact that we need to update all these medical supplies and devices that are in all these hospitals and, and doctor's offices, knowing that while we can improve our quality of life, it's going to be another mission to improve our actual length of life and uh, quality of physical life. And, and that's for healthy people and people who are born non-healthy or, or developed to be unhealthy in the future. So I think CRISPR might seem like a really complex company, and, and it is kind of, but in simple terms, it's a way of finding a specific bit of DNA inside of a cell. CRISPR's gene editing is uh, used to alter that piece of DNA. So CRISPR has also been adapted to do other things, such as turning genes on or off without altering the sequence. So this is like that like futuristic movie where it can be born with like, you know, three legs and, and run super fast kind of stuff, but in, in a real world sense. Um, in the not too distant future, many of the plants and animals in our farms, gardens, and homes may have been altered with CRISPR. In fact, some people are already eating CRISPR foods. Uh, and until now, consumers had little reason to like GMO foods. You know, the modifications mainly made food easier to grow for farmers, not more appealing to the shopper's side. But a new poll from the Pew Research Center found that uh, consumers pretty evenly split on whether they think GMO food is better for your health or worse. And uh, I think the nutrition and health side of it's probably going to be a game changer. And CRISPR is one that I'm personally excited about. I saw them give a demo at one of my previous companies I worked at. We had a massive conference and brought on all these new innovative companies. And CRISPR was one that I was just jaw dropped. I was drooling. My mind was exploding at some of the possibilities. We may even decide to use it to like change the genomes of our children. I know that's a touchy subject for, for everyone, but for example, if, if one of your children, you knew that they were gonna have a birth defect, if we had an ability to fix that prior to them being born, maybe there are some people that will, right? And so obviously very touchy subject and can go down this massive rabbit hole, which we will not, but just purely from a technology standpoint, that could be possible. Right. CRISPR could also, you know, be used to make those precise changes, replacing like faulty genes, as I mentioned. And, and I know that it's definitely a touchy subject about like gene editing and all that, because that's like, you know, that's, that's not only like, you know, biblical and like also just like ethically, morally reprehensible for people. But once again, like, I think that if you have the ability to make babies born healthy, that we're going to be born unhealthy, I don't think there's a single chance in the world that won't happen. I, and I know for a fact Sometime in the future, that's going to be a thing. So whether you feel good about it or not, as a stock, it doesn't matter your opinion. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter my opinion. Like, I don't think that it's going to be cool if everyone's going to be, you know, modified superheroes like in the, the Amazon series, The Boys, you know, because you can see how that can turn out. But I do think that a lot of people will be using this for the right reasons. And of course, your opinion doesn't dictate where the future is going to go. It, it, it can get there anyway. So just know that in terms of if you're investing in the stock on a bias that you personally have, whether, you know, it's ethical, religious, moral, whatever it is, just factor that into everything you invest in, because that's always a huge factor and don't be biased. So you won't be weirded out if I take your DNA and make my children all into 
my own hedge fund. Just a lot of little ponies running around here. <laughs> Not if I get a cut, I'll be good with it. <laughs> we'll give you a little percentage there. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Outset Medical. So ticker symbol is OM. You've been pounding the table on this one for quite some time. Yeah, so this one, uh, I really wanted to get in at like the $20, $24 share price at the IPO that it was expecting. But once again, it opened over 50. And so I waited a bit and I got a big position, low 40s of 42 to 45. I was really accumulating heavily. And I do have a big position, a full position now. It's, it's probably in my top 10 holdings, maybe 12. For me, outside medical, it has nothing to do with the revenue right now, has nothing to do with anything like that. It has more to do with the entire sector as a whole in terms of healthcare, right? Healthcare is one of the biggest costs of this country. And there's not been crazy innovation in terms of devices that do health, right? Like we have like Livongo and Teladoc. That's like one of the first big waves of change in the healthcare sector. So now we've got Outset Medical, which is, you know, diabetes and dialysis. And that is what I meant to say is that's the biggest part of healthcare that, you know, has a lot of issues for people. You have a dialysis center in almost every city around the country. And that is necessary because a lot of people in this country have diabetes. And while we do have this health trend going, I don't think that that's going to go away quickly anytime soon. But I do know that the administration, and I think that regardless of which administration it is, Trump specifically said he wanted to push to 85% at-home dialysis by 2025. So his second term, if he gets it, that's what he's going to be going for. And right now it's only at 13%. So Outset Medical is the one that has the leading self-use at-home dialysis machine at, at really like honestly affordable price compared to the other competitors. And the competitors, of course, you know, they have some type of thing out like this, but none of them are as easily usable because obviously think about it, like the people who are using this generally on the older side, right? And, you know, it, it has to be easy for them to use. It has to be affordable, low cost and portable, which this is all is. Um, so I'm piling the table on this as like a possible complete revolutionary shift in dialysis, diabetes. And, and it's, it's once again, it's about preventative care. So you have Livongo taking care of the preventative side, and then you have Outset Medical revolutionizing the care side of this as well. And I'm just long this one because I think that if one of these names were to do this, and which I think is going to be the future, these dialysis clinics are really expensive and they cost a ton of money to the government and the states. And then it's easily going to be where the future goes. It's just a question of which one will get there first. And I think it will be outside medical because they've already signed partnerships with the government. The next one we've talked about in length and even more exciting news here for Nanox. So ticker symbol NNOX, they are set to actually show the product. So in past episodes, I said, please, Mr. CEO, show the damn product. And he is going to show it. It's gonna be running November 29th to December 5th. And this is gonna take place in Chicago. Other exciting news is the next FDA 510K, their website uploads every uh, week or so, I believe, right? And so their current up-to-date is only through October 11th. There is a possibility that tonight, which is Sunday, they could actually get FDA approval. I'm not saying that it will happen tonight, but the next round, and it's gonna be only a matter of time before they either get approved or denied. So of course that is the risk here, but we are super bullish and very excited about this one. Tony, are you still are you still pounding on Nanox? Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I just want people to realize that there's companies that you buy because of the revenues that they're making now and what market that they're capturing now. And then there's companies that you have to have the foresight to think, what can they do? So Nanox, right? Like, you know, the total addressable market for CT machines, everything that Nanox does basically together is about 30 billion a year in the US. So if you really think about what Nanox can do, their product is 
70 kilograms versus 2000 kilograms. Their cost per scan is $30 versus $300. The amount of people who will be using a CT scan to not only prevent medical issues, right? So it's a lot easier to find a tumor if you get scanned every couple months versus once a year or two, if you only can afford one scan every half a decade or something. So this is not only going to allow people who already have the funds to use um, CT machines to get scanned and, you know, in surgeries and whatever else that they need to do, but think about all the places that don't have access to this kind of technology that will be able to have access to this kind of technology because of Nanox's revolution. So not only do I think it's going to like be great for the world and save a lot of lives and, you know, make a lot of people happier by knowing that their health's good and in check, but the amount of market that it can take by doing that, especially knowing that there's so many countries like you can't even move a normal CT machine in most places in Africa and like a lot of places in Latin America. It's just not accessible. It's not feasible to do it right now at this time at the price of those machines at one to three million dollars and the cost of each scan. So Nanox's market could get huge because it's going to create so many more customers and you know purchasers of those products through hospitals that would never be able to even think about getting another one of those machines logistically or, you know, financially right now. So it's going to move that total addressable market way up if it works out. And I think that with the amount of backers it has, it's got, you know, it's got always BlackRock, Sony, SK Telecom, Foxconn. Those are huge, huge companies. And I think that they would not be so bullish and so pounding the table themselves on this company if they thought it was a dud. So I think the FDA approval goes through. I think they'll continue to you know, speed up all the processes for the rest of their FDA approvals. I think the demonstration is going to be great. And I, I, I think that if this thing turns out the way that I'm hoping it will, this will be another one of those huge, huge bangers like Outset Medical can be. I mean, that thing is, these are both about a, tr a billion dollars in market cap. That is, if they execute, it's a 50X. So that, this is why you invest in these stocks. It's been quite the roller coaster. We got it at a massive upswing. Then it came down, obviously, with Muddy Waters and Citron with their short reports. Their CEO came out and said, mother effers, we're going to show this live, which then, of course, brought the stock right back up. Heading into that event, right, is there anything like negative, maybe more short reports? But I can only really see this kind of going up, at least until they actually show it. And then, of course, mm -hmm. there's fear of like missing deadlines and things like that. But up into the event where they actually show it, do we only see this going up or is it, you know, potentially things that mm -hmm. can bring this down heading into it? I think 35 is a really, really strong floor price. Uh, I think it's just been consolidating there very well into this event. So I think that until then, that'll probably be the floor price. Like, I think, I mean, the absolute floor price based on where it gapped up on the news is about 30. So I don't think it's going to crack under 30 into the event. And I think that if they execute well at the event, a lot of people are like, oh, it's, you know, events are sell the news. But this is not one of those like, oh, Tesla, how good is the new battery or how good is Apple's new iPhone? This is like, does this crap work or not? So it's it's a binary thing. If it works, it'll rock it. If it doesn't work, it'll dive to, to crash. Like it'll be bad. So there's definitely that risk in there. But once again, like you have to, you know, put your eggs in a basket that you're comfortable with. And, and, and that comes with which stock and which amount of size you want to allocate to it. So, I mean, I've got Nanox in my top 15 just because I know that at a $1 billion market cap, if they execute this demo, the live demo that they're going to be doing, and if people realize that the revenue and all those deals that they have projected for next year, if this all goes through well, this company is easy at 10x. Like it, just off of those, it was like 7,500 contingent orders 
And once again, they're recurring uh, scan as a software service, like their medical scans as a software. So it's got a subscription model, a hardware model, kind of similar to Square. And if they execute, I just, I don't see this not being worth at least 10 billion. I, I honestly, it would shock me if they execute and it doesn't happen. Now, Tony, before we wrap this up and end here strong with the thesis pick, want to just take a second to digest everything you just said, you know, thinking about all those in-depth analysis you just gave, how does this information now like affect our portfolios? So I'm thinking, you know, back in the day, you mentioned Fastly, for instance, is going to be at a $500 stock. Clearly things have changed, right? So it's not as bullish. How do we aggregate this and, and think about what we do towards our portfolios, especially as, you know, we head into the election, obviously, that is on every single person's mind right now. Yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to wrap this up in like one one cogent thought. So you've got about three dimensions when you're investing, right? Like you've got your time dimension. So like how long is it going to be until things materialize? You've got the gain dimension. So what are you standing to make if you're right? And then you have the risk dimension. So what am I standing to lose if I'm wrong? And so the first five stocks that we mentioned, SE, Mealy, Square, uh, Livongo, Teladoc Merger, and Datadog, to me, have the strongest bases for being consistently strong in this market because they're not insanely high valuations. They're doing very, very well on their own, just you know, in terms of their revenue, in terms of their profits. And so I think that that will continue, especially in the sectors that they're in. They have multiple business legs to stand on, or they're revolutionizing an entire industry and doing it well and showing us that they're doing that. So that's why those are in the top five for me as of today. And so we talked about, you know, Fastly, like you just said, do I think it's still going to go to 500? It's definitely a possibility. I think the management, uh, I think things will change for it and it'll get better over time once again. But I do think that Net looks like a stronger competitor now because of that, you know, revolutionary Cloudflare one thing that they just put out. So that's why I put Fastly in the riskier section. But a week ago, it was not in the risky section until the things that I mentioned that I didn't like that the company did, they did that. And then I want to talk about, of course, you know, Fiverr. I love the company. I think it's going to go another 10x in the coming decade, but it ran 100% in a month and it's got earnings coming up. So that's why it's on the riskier side for me as of right now. And the same with Etsy. So if those mass theorists are right, which I don't think they are, but you know, there's always that risk. That's why it's also in that section. I think it's really, really cheap compared to the other e-commerce stocks. But if you really want to like, understand that there's risk involved in you know, people having differing opinions, and it's kind of a crapshoot to figure out what's actually going to be happening in terms of the revenue growth and everything, that's the only reason it's there, even though I think that all those people are wrong. So assessing risk is important. And once again, the med tech space, that is why those are not even in those first two sections, because those are really, really not only hard to develop, but the risk reward is is also really great there because you could be wrong and the stock can go to five or you could be right and the stock can go to 500. So Outset Medical, Nanox, CRISPR and, and Celsius even, you know, just in, in terms of health trends, those all have the potential to be really, really, really big stocks. It's just they don't have that revenue right now. They don't have that customer base as much right now. Those things have to have time to develop into those companies, which is why those are not in the first two tiers that I mentioned. So Think about where you want to put your risk, right? Like those five stocks I mentioned are my five favorites. So I allocate the majority. I put 50% or 45% in those five names um, because those will hold up best in a correction, in my opinion. So, you know, the other tier, I have, you know, a little bit less of percent, maybe 20%. And then the third tier, I have another 10 or 15%, you know, various other couple stocks I have a couple percent in, but that's how I adjust my risk by things that I know have that strength, get the biggest weighting. And then the next ones that have a potential to have an issue, 
those get a little bit less of a weighting. And then the ones that I think can be revolutionary, but have not shown it right now because they're so new and they're basically startups like Outset Medical and Nanox, those get the lower percentage even more just because the risk reward on those is higher. So I don't need as much money, but if I'm wrong, I don't want to lose as much money. So that's what I'm thinking. And I think that that's something that most people should think about. Whether it's these stocks or your own list of stocks, the concept applies in, in general. Tony, appreciate you beautifully articulating your thesis around all of those picks. Now it's time we get into the actual pounders thesis <laughs> pick. So this week's winner, we have two people that picked this one. So at Naked Calls and as well as at Happy Go Lucky, they both selected ticker symbol MGNI. That company name is Magnite. So Magnite, you mentioned to me, is probably the biggest spade is a spade, which we'll get into in just a second. Clearly, the world is shifting towards streaming. Disney recently confirmed this. The best independent sell-side advertising platform has so much room, you said, to run towards infinity. If you look at things such as TTD or you look at Roku, how are these ads evolving, of course, with streaming? Obviously, there's more chance for brands to then jump into customization, real-time auctions to reach that intended audience. I mean, if you look at Pinterest, all of a sudden, this advertising stock to be in, right? It completely allows you to actually customize your feed. This is one you've been pounding literally since it was the Rubicon project. It obviously merged now into MGNI. And my biggest question to you is, Tony... Can we teach an old dog new tricks? Uh, I did love this one a lot, especially when it was the Rubicon project just on its own. So I wrote it from seven to 13, but then the merger happened with Talaria. So I knew that the action there wasn't as great. So I was waiting for them to merge and settle the dust and, and see what happened to get back in. To talk about what Magnite is, it's a sell-side advertising technologist. So publishers use its platform to make money on their content, listing ad slots for buy-side advertising, intermediaries to purchase on the behalf of their customers. So for example, if a TV show like publisher wants to make a 30 second ad available for like a commercial break or something, the company could list it on Magnite to make that slot available for purchase from an advertiser that's outside. As a sell side service for connected TV and other uh, digital outlets, Magnite is the largest independent name in the industry after they did this merger, even though Roku is now doing both the buy and sell side. So how can Roku be doing so well without Magnite also doing well? Because it's obviously a massive market at advertising. So there's enough for both. I think that Magnite's super cheap based on the fact it's only worth $936 million after that merger. And it'll do $245 million in revenue next year. So that's less than a four times next year's price to sales multiple. And so I've started adding and I'll continue to add under nine just because $9 has been a pretty strong level. And the reason I did this and why I didn't do it before is because on October 1st, Disney launched the Magnite powered Disney Hulu XP platform. So it's like a unified storefront for digital ads across Hulu and Disney's other TV networks. So you know that Disney's becoming a streaming beast. You know that, you know, so many platforms like Roku have Disney obviously embedded. So even if Roku does the buy side too, Magnite is exclusively partnered with Disney now, so it doesn't really matter. And so I think that the fact that this industry is so, so big and it's just really getting started, you know, you see streaming wars happening all over the place for the last few years. You do need the sell side to the buy side. And I think Magnite's in a good position based on like its valuation. And this deal with Disney really confirms it as a company. So now I'm actually very along this one. And we'll probably be talking about this a lot in the coming weeks once it starts showing its true colors after the news gets baked in a little bit more. And we actually have some breaking news right as we wrap up the show. Looks like Pelosi said the stimulus talks have 48 hours to pass from today or they will not be until after the election. 
let's couple that with some of the earnings coming up from the previous stocks we just discussed. Can you give us some last thoughts here to, to wrap up the show? given that news and anything we can gain from that here. Yeah, I mean, so th this is why we wanted to do this kind of episode today. I know we have a lot of different segments on this show. I think it's so important to really just like hammer home what we really truly deeply talk about on Pie on the Table every week and just give a, a strong breakdown on each of the companies and like what we're thinking of them now because, you know, things change day to day. So you've got earnings on a lot of these companies coming up and I think that a lot of them are stretched. So and not stretch in terms of where they'll be next year, but just like in the last month or so, you know, you've seen this growth uh, has gone exponential in the last month. So for me, that's why I'm starting to trim a little bit of those names, just because I think I'll get a better price during the election volatility, during the possible stimulus talk volatility, and, and during the possible rotation out of a little bit of these names because they've ran so much. So that's why we broke it down into what we think is like the strongest, second strongest, and, you know, those high risk, high reward kind of names. And that's why I mentioned just now how I allocate my portfolio going into this kind of situation, because, you know, even if they demolish earnings, it could be priced in. So you just don't know how these big high movers are going to move after they report, you know, stimulus talks go bad, the entire market could tank. And that's why, you know, the second and third tiered stocks that we talked about would probably be hit a little bit the hardest. And then, of course, election, we have no idea what's going to happen there. Um, you know, polls or whatever and opinions or whatever, it, it means nothing until, you know, the, the cash is in the bank. So you have to see what's going to happen there. It's just better to be prepared in this situation than be like, oh, crap, like I'm screwed. My All my holdings are in like the riskiest, highest growth names. And those are the ones that held the worst. And now, you know, I want to buy the dip, but I don't have extra cash to buy the dip. So I'm actually 75% stock right now. And I think I'm going to get like 80 to 85% stock into the election and then a, a little bit of leap and a little bit of cash. And I'm happy to be like almost fully invested regardless of upcoming volatility I see because I'm, I'm allocating the majority, like 50% of my portfolio into those five or six names that I like the most. And you know, the rest of them are are di for diversification reasons. You know, those, some of them might outperform, even though we think they won't. And some of them will, you know, that we think might do great, will do a little worse. So it's all just about keeping your eggs in different baskets, but I, I wouldn't leave the, the coop just yet, personally, and just make sure I batten down the hatches. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been quite in depth episode. So appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. Uh, I know this was a longer episode, so we did not get into the questions today. Tony and I may actually do a side episode to just answer questions because I know we have a backlog here from about two weeks. But as we wrap up episode 13, if you have not yet checked out our website, it is poundingthetablepodcast.com. So please go there. Make sure you subscribe. That will enable you to ensure that you never miss an episode. We're going to actually be starting a newsletter in the near future. We are filling up arenas, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We've got about 50,000 <laughs> listens overall here to Pounding the Table. Really appreciate all the support from those of you who have listened from episode one, all the people that are just joining for the first one. We are just getting started here. Yeah. And if you guys like the show, please share it with your friends and family. Like I know that my girlfriend, one of her best friends listens and takes notes with her boyfriend listens, take notes with her mom. So like, and people are like really wanting to get in the stock market and we like try to provide as much detail information and opinion. So you know, please share this with anyone that you think would be interested and benefit from it. So we do also have a support button if you'd like to contribute to the ongoing growth and what we're trying to do and continue to do Pounding the Table better and better every week of the show. We're just trying to make Pounding the Table a household name. So we really do appreciate all the support, the comments, the kind words, even the criticisms, you know, it makes us do a better show every week. So 
thank you guys very much. Really hope you guys enjoyed the show. I know it's a little different than you know what we usually do, but I felt like it was so pertinent to do this ahead of all that's coming up. So I hope you guys had a great show and I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it was a little bit of a different episode than usual, but we felt it was really, really pertinent. So as always, Pounders, stay strong, have a great trading week, and we'll see you next week.